Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Oh, there we go. (laughs) You think after all these years in broadcasting, I would not only turn up the volume, but I'd actually turn the switch on. There we go. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside Sources today here at KSL News Radio. Just a moment ago, we had the uh, mayoral debate, uh, the two final candidates. We had uh, Senator Luz Escamilla. We also had Councilwoman Erin Mendenhall, who debated. It was a good debate. A lot of things I think were learned if people were really listening. Some people, they only listened to, to debates for the fireworks, uh, the, in other words, the entertainment value. But I think if people were really listening for the issues and what the real beliefs were, what the priorities were, there was one place it got a little tense between the two candidates, and that was on the inland port, which seems to make about anybody tense when that is brought up. But we wanted to review a little bit of the debate, but I also wanted to hear from you. Our Utah Community Credit Union text line is wide open for you at 57500. And I'd like to uh, to ask you, first of all, who do you think won the debate? And second of all, if you are a resident of Salt Lake City, who will, at, at least if you've made up your mind? I've heard uh, that there are some polls out there that show it's within the margin of error. And I have heard also that in that poll, there were approximately 20, 21% of people were undecided so far. So that still leaves this race wide open. When you have a relatively close poll within maybe five points, that's usually in, in small sample polls within the margin of error. And then you have 21% who are saying they haven't really made up their minds yet. That leaves a little wiggle room for everybody involved in either campaign. So if you are a resident of Salt Lake City, for whom will you vote? Will it be Luz Escamilla? Will it be Aaron Mendenhall? I've always argued this, too, and only half-kiddingly, that I think every resident in the state of Utah ought to have a quarter vote, and anybody who works in downtown Salt Lake City ought to have a half a vote, because it's that important. Some people are going, I don't live in Salt Lake City. Why should I care? This is your capital city is why you should care. So many things that affect us all happen here in Salt Lake City. There are other things, too, that are very important. Salt Lake City is a very unique city, not only in its history, its heritage, its founding, everything you can imagine. The fact that it's the worldwide headquarters for many, many organizations, not the least of which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The fact that because this is the seat of government in the state of Utah, for not only the state, not only the city, but the county as well, because of other properties, that because of religious affiliations and so on, are off the tax rolls, it puts Salt Lake City in a very, very interesting position. Unlike many cities, a good chunk of Salt Lake City, and it is not insubstantial. I don't have the statistic right here. I can't remember. It's like 47%, something like that, is is not taxable because our 
We have the state capitol sitting there. We have the salt palace sitting there. We have police departments. We have fire stations. We have churches. We have things like that. Salt Lake City is a little unique in that category. And that's why when they start talking about the taxation that surrounds the ability for the uh, tax dollars from the inland port, it becomes important. That's why even something like the brickyard and whether or not it ought to be annexed into Mill Creek versus where it has been since the very beginning when Salt Lake City was asked if they would incorporate that into the city and if they would put the infrastructure there so it could become an area of commerce, you can see why Salt Lake City rather jealously hangs on to taxable property. So there are many reasons that we all, it is the crossroads of the West, it is our capital city. So many of us, whether we live in the city or not, we work here, we recreate here, many, many important things in our lives, in our cultures, in our religions, in our, in our associations, in our fraternal organizations, whatever it might be, uh, educational opportunities. I mean, that's another entity. I mean, you look at the University of, uh, of Utah. So it makes Salt Lake City a very unique place. So for those naysayers out there that are thinking to themselves, why should I care about Salt Lake City's mayoral race? Believe me, we all should care. It's that important. It truly is. I wanted to just highlight a few things that occurred during the debate. I've had the opportunity to know both of the candidates for some time. And uh, we wanted to reshare. I think we have that right now, don't we, the opening statements? Yeah, we do. Uh, let's, uh, let's just share the opening statement. And because of the flip of a coin, Luz Escamilla was the uh, first to give her thoughts and her statement. I am Luz Escamilla, and I'm running to be the next mayor of our great city. I love this city. It welcomed me with open arms 22 years ago. I believe Salt Lake City is at the moment where we can overcome challenges and harness our potential to provide residents a city that is sustainable, a city that is safe, a city that is well-managed, and a city that leads the way and reflects our collective values. I am running for mayor to protect and expand all opportunities, whether they are economic, social, or hair-related, to our all Salt Lake City residents. I have always been grateful for the opportunities I've received in this great city, and I've always felt the desire to give back to this great country and to my community. And I've done that for the last 11 years as a state senator serving in the Utah State Legislature. Now I'm hoping to bring my record, my reputation, and my experience in the private, nonprofit, and for-profit sectors and being the mayor's office. Thank you. And then we had the opening statement from Erin Mendenhall, who is currently a Salt Lake City Councilwoman. I'm Erin Mendenhall, two-term city councilwoman, longtime clean air advocate. And I'm going to be quick and jump right into this because I know that Doug is going to ask us in just a moment about whether or not we support uh, allowing the road home to remain open as an emergency shelter. I know this issue is important to the Pioneer Park Coalition, who is sponsoring our debate today. It is important to me, too, and I bring it up because I think it's indicative of this race that we are running today and the kind of leadership that Salt Lake City needs. The city right now is in a homeless crisis today, and there are no easy solutions to it. There is not a neighborhood in the city that wants another homeless shelter, whether it's permanent or temporary. I know because I have lived and I have worked through this with our community for years. The experience on the city council is fundamentally different than experience on Capitol Hill. 
there's not a theoretical problem. This is not a theoretical problem for us, and it's not something we can wait until the next legislative session to pass a bill to address. It is my job on the council to make tough choices. It is my job to deal with the realities, not the things we wish they were. That's the job of the mayor, too. We need a mayor who can confront these realities, work with the community, and make sure we address issues realistically. It really is most interesting to listen to these two uh, women who have really devoted a lot of time, a lot of energy, have served in various capacities uh, in their current positions and also elsewhere. But there is a, a real interesting fundamental difference because Luce's background comes primarily from the legislature. And that is so important when you are the city that that actually hosts the capital city. Having a great relationship with the state legislature is very important. Aaron Mendenhall's experience has been primarily in the city council, which also is so important because there's a lot to the nuts and bolts, the daily workings, those meetings that happen when the council is hearing from the citizens of the capital city. And ultimately, the responsibility of the mayor of Salt Lake City is to make sure that the capital city is everything that it should be. It is a showplace for the state of Utah. It is, maintains that amazing image that we've had since 1847 as being the crossroads of the West. And both of these women bring interesting capabilities and talents to that, uh, that objective. When we come back, we have some more uh, highlights from the debate. And again, I would be, be very interested uh, to hear from you. What did you think of the debate? Who do you think won the debate? And for those who actually have the vote in Salt Lake City, have you made up your mind yet? And for whom will you vote? You can text your comments to 57500. You can always also call us and leave your thoughts, and we try to replay all of these that we possibly can. 801 575 Let's go ahead and take a, a brief break when we come back. Some more highlights, plus many people in Salt Lake City and other communities. Remember, this isn't the only place where we have council and mayoral races and issues going on in the upcoming election in November. But Salt Lake City certainly is one of the key races right now. We'll play some more highlights. We'll tell you about the mail-in ballots and more. Stay with us. I'm Doug Wright here on Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, it was interesting when we uh, talked with our two candidates for the mayor's job in Salt Lake City. When Inland Port came up, wow, that's where it got a little uh, exciting. Also, uh, a question that I really appreciated somebody submitting, and we'll hopefully get a little sound from this uh, a little later on, but it's the teen suicide. Suicide rates, first of all, in the state of Utah are not just unacceptable, they're shocking. I mean, there's never an acceptable rate. It's, it's like we say on Utah's highways, you know, it's zero fatalities. That's the acceptable number, is zero. It's the same thing here. And, you know, the, the question was asked, basically, what, what's going on? What do we need to do? That type of thing. And uh, I, I wasn't frustrated with their answers. I was frustrated with the, uh, with the issue. I, and, and I've always been frustrated with it because we, we can always say, what, you know, we, we hear high altitude. We hear this and this. We hear – and, you know, there is something fundamentally wrong. Something is amiss. 
and to use a term, all is not well in Zion on this issue. And there's something peculiar because we are in an embarrassing situation when it comes to especially teen suicide, suicide in general. I mean, often we talk about the wonderful things in the state of Utah. We talk about the wonderful numbers. We talk about our unemployment rate. We talk about this. We talk about education. We talk about being bilingual. We talk about, you know, these wonderful neighborhoods that we have. And it's all true. But, but there's a dark underbelly that should concern everybody. And finally, after both of the candidates answered the question about teen suicide especially, and it was asked by one of our panelists who indicated some of the things that uh, Skyline High School had done in light of some issues that they had had. They brought in a counselor, full-time uh, person to deal with this. And, but when we came back from it all, I just asked, why? Why are our kids especially? And I, and I didn't pull the punch. I said, why are our kids killing themselves? Every state has the same issues. We might be a little unique in our high altitude, but there are other states with high altitude as well. Why? And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And Aaron Mendenhall said that's the toughest question we'll be asked today. Uh, let's play a couple of uh, more sound. And by, I'd love to get your opinion on that as well. I mean, what in the world is going on? Why here in this great state that is so, in, in so many ways, just an overwhelmingly beautiful place to live, regardless of our high altitude, does that factor in? I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but some other high-altitude states have a little higher rate as well. But what is it about Utah? What is it about our great state? And by the way, Sherry Swenson will be joining us. She is the uh, the clerk here in Salt Lake County. And since we're focused particularly today on the Salt Lake City mayoral race, we thought we'd talk with Sherry because uh, many of you are if you live in Salt Lake City and even elsewhere, there are some other races certainly that are going on throughout the state of Utah. But you're sitting there looking at your mail-in ballot, and we'll talk to Sherry about the ins and outs of all of that. Uh, here's, uh, let's see, this person said, I don't live in Salt Lake City, so I don't have a dog in the fight. I would argue you do. All of us do because it's our capital city, but I know what you mean. However, in this type of debate, there's no winner or loser, just the person that best represents what I or any other person wants to happen. You know, this isn't, you know, one of those free-for-all, you know, World Wrestling Federation type debates. Unfortunately, some people, that's what they crave. They just want people throwing chairs at each other, screaming and hollering at each other, you know, casting aspersions at one another. And unless they get that, and I appreciate what our texter said, this is debate, and, and there were places where things were debated, and I allowed it to go back and forth a little bit. But this is an opportunity for, if people are really listening, to go, okay, who best fits your temperament? Who is basically advocating the things that you believe in? So, yeah, there really is no winner or loser, and I appreciate. But, you know, usually people will walk away and they'll go, you know, I was neutral, but now I'm kind of leaning toward, and that's kind of what I'm searching for. 
All right, let's uh, get a couple of more sound bites because the Salt Lake City Police Department has come up. I have seen the police department when it has been the issue. Boy, back in the day with Chief Ortega and others, it was the issue. But right now it's more just, okay, in the hiring of people to be on our police department, are we doing everything humanly possible to make the police department look like our community. And uh, Luz Escamilla gave the first response. I don't think we are doing enough. It has to be very intentional. We want um, to increase our community policing. I do applaud Chief Brown for working and actually putting that as part of the responsibilities of the current police officers. But it's going to require more. You need to create a pipeline of individuals that feel connected to law enforcement. And many communities, especially in communities where I live on the west side, that's not happening. We clearly are not reflecting of our ethnic diversity, our um, immigrant and refugee community diversity that we have in our city. So it's going to require more intention, being more proactive in communicating and connecting with those communities at a very young age. And it takes a while to get that pipeline. It's not You can't do it over even five years, but I think there is way more work that we can do. And I have experience for the state government doing that. I work for Governor Huntsman as a director of the State Office of Ethnic Affairs which was a very intentional position to make sure we have a government that reflects our diversity. So I'm ready to do that in day one. Councilwoman Mendenhall had this response. This is a question that I started asking on day one in City Hall six years ago as a new councilwoman. We looked at the police department, the fire department, and said, where are the people with diversity in terms of racial and uh, gender also. We don't have many women in the fire department. I asked the departments these questions, and I'm grateful that over the years they've looked introspectively to see how can we improve the kind of recruitment that we do. I've happy to, been happy to bring the funding for the fire department to do that. Today there's programs like Camp Athena and Camp Prometheus that work with students from uh, low-income parts of the county and bring those people in. Uh, Athena's for young women, Prometheus for young men. We also have the Police Explorer Program, and I've been happy to work with the police department to fund that, which also, again, works with young people in the community to bring them in, teach them about the police department, and show them really that we're invested in them, that we're interested in them. We need to do more of that. It is a hard job being a police officer and a firefighter in the capital city. I'm proud to have their support from the unions that represent represent those workers, and I'll keep working with them to expand diversity. We'll have more sound from the uh, debate. We wanted to share that with you for those who uh, may not have heard the entire thing, just some of the uh, highlights. One thing that we wanted to get into next, we're going to talk about the homeless issues, and especially those now. Pioneer Park, it's not perfect, but it's a whole lot better than it was a couple of years ago. But some of those issues have moved on to Library Square, so we'll get their thoughts on that. Boy, talk about something as if it's not bad enough to have Pioneer Park, which is the largest green open space in Salt Lake City that is available generally to the public to recreate as a family and so on, to use as a park, as it were, as if that's not bad enough. Now the library is having some of the same issues, maybe not quite to the degree, but you see tents set up, you see people utilizing the library grounds as a campground, a place where you put up your tent, a place where you live for a while, a place where you go in and use the restroom facilities and the sinks become basically your bathtub and your shower. It is it is absolutely unacceptable. And I'm not saying that, you know, we that the, the solution is way upstream from that. 
uh, you know, to round people up and to not see them as our fellow human beings. And as my friend Pamela Atkinson always says, they are our homeless friends. They are people that need assistance. They are people that need help. There are people that need guidance. There are people that are really off the rails. But boy, there's got to be something. So that doesn't become a place that Salt Lake City families, Salt Lake City children, Salt Lake City young people, or just, you know, whomever that they shun because of the environment that is so sketchy there. We're going to talk with Scott Howell, uh, who is with the Pioneer Park Coalition, and uh, Dave DeRocher, who is with the Other Side Academy. We'll get their take on the uh, mayoral debate coming up in just a moment. That's coming up next on Inside Sources. Thank you so much, and we'd love to hear from you at our Utah Community Credit Union KSL text line at 57500. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, it's good to have you along on the program today. We've been getting your reaction to the mayoral debate that just occurred. And it's interesting, one of the, and, and we'll play the actual uh, sound from this a little later on in the program. But we talked about the teen suicide situation, especially. Now, suicide numbers in the state of Utah are shocking from beginning to end. But when it comes to our kids, it is particularly troubling, obviously. The only acceptable number is zero. But I've, I've asked the question because, you know, every state has much of the same issues. Yes, maybe we are at a higher altitude, but so are some other states. And so what is it really? And it's interesting. This uh, And, and people are, are hopping in on this one. This person said part of it is so many of the people, especially the younger ones, cannot live up to the unrealistic standards of their church affiliation, especially in the LGBTQ community. This person said a big part of why so many people are killing themselves, especially middle-aged men, is because nobody wants to get help. Because when they do, or someone they know will ask for help, they are only met with a temporary solution and sometimes a harsh judgment by family and peers, it just makes it too much to take, too much to live with. Wow. All right, we'll continue to share uh, thoughts on that. We have more sound. Sherry Swenson will be joining us from Salt Lake uh, County, the county clerk, and she'll uh, talk to us about our ballots and how we can best participate. I'm delighted to have uh, two people that have become very dear friends of mine over the years. Scott Howell is here when I met Skull, Scott, rather, or Skull. That's I've been your, called a lot more. That's, that's your Norwegian <laughs> yeah, name, right, Skull like Howell. <laughs> when I met Scott, he was the minority leader on Utah's Capitol Hill, and uh, we've known each other a long, long time. And he and the Pioneer Park Coalition worked very hard on this debate today, as did Other Side Academy. And Dave DeRocher, who's its director, is here with us. And Dave, it's been fun to get to know you now over the past almost five years and uh, the the great things you've done and the help you've given my family and in, in moving our family. And, you know, one of the uh, questions actually involved that, just what a going concern that has become. Let's get your reaction, both of you. Dave, maybe we can start with you. You were able to ask a question or two during the uh, debate. And what did you think of the results? Uh, I thought the results were really good. I think the question that really seems to be gnawing at me is we're losing so many lives here in Salt Lake City because there's such a huge gap. We have so many people that once they get to a point where they're ready, they're using, they're on the streets, that's it, they've had it, they're there, where do they go? 
they can come to the Other Side Academy and get some help, but they need to detox first. Most of your treatment centers are going to require them to detox. That's where the gap is at. So we're losing lives and we're losing a lot of them because we don't have the beds available for people to go to that don't have the money to detox for a week, seven, eight days, whatever it's going to take. So they then can go get the help that they need in order to change their lives. That is a, it's a huge piece that seems to be missing. If we could, if we could fill that gap and get these beds available for people when they're ready, you wouldn't be able to put a number on the number of lives it will save. I won't ask you for whom you will vote, but was your your mind or your thoughts in that arena changed or enhanced today? Did you become more, you know, convinced that one or the other should be the next mayor? Absolutely. I, I came in kind of already knowing who I was going to vote for, and I'm sure of it today. Scott, let's get your reaction. Uh, speaking for and representing the Pioneer Park Coalition, and uh, neither of us are residents of Salt Lake City. You know, I've only half joked. You've heard me say this before. <laughs> I've, I, I, I'm only half joking when I say this that Salt Lake City residents get a full vote. Those of us who work in Salt Lake City get a half a vote. And those who live in the state get a quarter vote because what happens in our capital city matters. Oh, it does. It it definitely does. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you, Doug, for moderating a great debate. I think these candidates were spot on and they came off script today, which was really good because we got to see who they were and what they stood for. I think the winners clearly in this debate are every citizen in the state of Utah and more importantly in the city of Salt Lake mm. because they got uh, – there were some deep uh, questions there. The Inland Port, it was really interesting to see the difference between those two candidates and how they view the world. I think uh, on the homeless issue and closing down the shelter – um, there's a piece of that that I don't want uh, our, our listeners and, and citizens of the community to get so emotionally involved about freezing to death. And let me give you a perfect example of that. My wife and I are inner city missionaries, and when we went to our ward on Sunday, there was a woman piled with blankets, 15 deep, and we didn't even know she was in there. Finally, Linda said, I think there's some boots there. Long story short, short we got her over to the Gerald Jean King Center, we spent a lot of time with her, and first of all, people have to make a commitment that they want to change. We tried everything to help her. We gave her everything, and there's just a population that will be part of the elements because they choose to be that. Yeah. But for our candidates, they need to. I think they both showed their points of view and where they are. The road home, I think, when Senator Escamilla gave the audit – that that is not a safe place for family members and for your children or mine if they were homeless. And I think Aaron made a good point that that it, it's not uh, – we've got to have a place, and I know the state has a pl- uh, plan in place. Nobody will freeze to death on our street. That should not be an emotional ploy to get votes or not have votes. Right. It's interesting because, you know, over the years we, we talk about the road home, and, and I know that there are people involved in the road home who have just – made Wonderful huge people. sacrifices. I mean, Absolutely. they're they're probably somewhere in line for sainthood somewhere yes. down down yes. the road. But yet the experience within, wasn't it David Garbett? It was. Who spent the night there and no, it was Ben the, McAdams. Yeah, it was uh, Bryson Garbett. Bryson Garbett. Yeah. That's right. It was His Bryson dad. Garbett. And, and he stayed there three nights or uh, two days and three nights. 
and uh, unbelievable what we heard. But that really was the impetus to put the the audit in place. And then that's when the state and Speaker Yu said there is a problem there. There's drug yeah. transactions. There's knives, guns, rapes, and all those things. So, yeah, it's it, it is one of those issues, and it is so hard for most of us to imagine that there are certain individuals because of a mental state yes. or whatever it might be that they are. And actually, in with whatever capacity they have, they choose that life. And it's so unimaginable. Sarah, 38 years old, we took her over there. She had some – fortunately, we had a social worker in our ward that was there on the steps that, that helped us to defuse this situation. But, she, Doug, she does not want to change. Yeah. We gave her every opportunity. In fact, I called Dave to say, we've got a candidate for you. But she wouldn't go over there and sit on the bench. Yeah, and so she's made her life choice, and that's what it is. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. I I really enjoyed uh, during this debate that we had folks from our community who asked questions and had concerns. One was Caroline uh, Delanois, and uh, you asked a question on suicide that I've already alluded to, and I appreciated that. And how did you feel about the response? Um, I thought that. I like the response about how both of them talked about incorporating mental health professionals in schools. And I attended a high school in the Salt Lake City School District, and it seemed like they were thinking that counselors were the avenue to do this. And counselors are often trained in this um, in helping with mental health things, but they don't do enough. You need a certain person whose specific job is to help with this. And I've had so many friends um, now in college as well who – have really large mental health concerns. And I think that that's what the step needs to be taken. And I felt like both candidates kind of alluded to that, but didn't really say anything specific because we need a person who people can turn to that don't have to manage 17 other jobs and aren't trying right. to help with college applications and all of these things that are, are there for you anytime and are accessible. And I think that that's what needs to be done. Uh, we, we so appreciated your participation, and that question meant a lot, and I, uh, I couldn't help but follow up to it, as I've already mentioned, you know, because somewhere along the line, I hear this with so many issues. I hear it with, uh, with gun violence. I hear it with so many things, you know, these mass shootings and so on. They go, well, you know, other, well, you know, other places have pornography. Other places have social media. Other places have bullying. Other places have this litany of excuses or reasons. But the fact is, the United States of America, we don't have a good track record. We are either doing something differently, allowing something differently that is making it worse. And it's the same thing for the state of Utah. You can sugarcoat it all you want. You can talk about our high altitude. You can talk about everything else. But the fact is, a lot of states have high altitudes. A lot of states have some of the things that we do. What is unique to our situation that is causing especially our young people to consider and sadly far too often take their own lives? Doug, I think the accessibility of firearms is also an issue. We have to know as a society, that when we have a perpetual notion of firearms so readily available out there and we don't have some basic laws about uh, uh, keeping them locked and keeping them safe, when their accessibility is so easy for someone of a mental state to get one and go out and commit this, that has to be a part of the discussion. And trust me, we're going to get a lot of emails that are going to say, oh, that Scott Howell does away with my 
my, my uh, constitutional right. That's not true. We need to make this safe for everyone. And as a firearm owner, I do. I keep mine where they right. need to be. And just basic things like that. And I think red flag laws are really critical, too. I, boy, we're seeing bipartisan support on that around the country yes. and in Utah. And the, there is just no doubt about it, regardless of how one feels about guns. Young men especially, when they choose to end their lives, they usually choose a gun, and it does the job. It, I mean, that's putting it on the bottom line. Dave, maybe we can get a final thought from you. I've already hijacked you guys. We went over and dragged you out of the studio over there. We're happy to do it. What are your thoughts on, on – you've you have seen life – from an angle that many of us have not and never will. What are your thoughts on suicide in the state of Utah? There's there are so many reasons, and I think so much of it has to do with trauma and, and the way people are raised. I, I can look back at my history and how I was raised and all of the things that happened, and I didn't recognize it then. And what I realized today is, is it's so much easier to raise good kids than it is to fix broken men. There is so much to be said about the family dynamic and we're so concerned in this community, we're so concerned in this country about making money and being success that we no longer are adding value to the family dynamic. And the kids are the ones suffering, and you don't know it when it's happening until they get a little bit older, and then you can't even connect the dots. So much needs to be done to make sure these kids are raised in a household where they are loved, where there's not abuse, where there's not verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, where they're not seeing mom and dad uh, drinking and using and all of the things that cause them to be influenced to do the same. So much of it happens when they're younger. That will help eliminate a lot of the want to end your life. And I think you touched on it earlier with the LDS influence. That's a very touchy subject. That's a difficult one to navigate because in some cases it saves lives and yeah. in others it makes it difficult. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it does a lot more good than it does harm. It's, it definitely adds a, an element of love and compassion that, that needs to be there. It's a very, very difficult situation to address and to figure out but so much of it starts at home it really does that's a great note to wrap up this conversation on i can't thank you uh, enough all of you for first of all putting the debate together scott and dave thank you so much with that along with so many others from your respective organizations but also caroline thank you for participating it i think it adds so much when kind of real folks you know <laughs> who are out there from various walks of life in salt lake city or in whatever the venue might be for the debate participate and doug look at the future here i know it's in good hands it is in good i hands. think <laughs> of your your kids and and i look at caroline and her wisdom today and getting to know her you never know and i think you're a first-time voter right yes all right first-time first voter. voter good for right you right here in salt lake city Okay, now I'm not going to ask you for whom. Did you make up your mind? I did. You did? Yes. Definitively? I think I'm going to go home and watch it again, <laughs> take notes, and then make it definitive. You know, I, I will say this. I love campaigns. I love races where you cannot go wrong. Yeah. There are two very fine, decent people that are running for this office. And uh, while I have my preference, too, I'll tell you, Salt Lake City's fortunate to have such a great choice here. Absolutely. Great future. Let's take a break. We'll come right back. We're going to talk with Sherry Swenson coming up next. And how in the world do you vote? We're going to tell you. That's coming up next. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. It's so good to have you along on the program today. I'm Doug Wright filling in temporarily for um, Inside Sources. We'll tell you a little more about that coming up. 
Uh, but I wanted to focus on the election, not only in Salt Lake City. That's been the primary focus because of the mayoral debate. And as we have underscored ad nauseum today, it really is important. Who is the mayor of Salt Lake City is important to us all. And if you think, well, you know, what do I care? I don't live in Salt Lake City. Believe me, it matters. It matters greatly. Who is the mayor of our capital city? We all have a dog in the fight to one degree or another. So how do we vote? I'm so pleased that our Salt Lake County clerk could join us over now many, many years. I've always turned to uh, Clerk Sherry Swenson for information and details on innumerable things in our elections. And Sherry, thank you for joining us again today. You're welcome. Let's talk about voting in Salt Lake County, but in Salt Lake City particularly today. And there are other elements. It's not that we're only talking about one race in the entire state. This is going on all over the place. But what do people need to be aware of with the ballots that they have received in the mail? Well, the first thing to be aware of is that when they return their ballot, they need to sign the affidavit on the return envelope. It's always very difficult when we see a ballot returned where they haven't signed that affidavit. That's like providing their ID to us. So we compare the signature on every return ballot envelope to the signature on that voter's record. And if they don't sign it, we have to then contact them by sending them a letter to let them know we need their signature in order to count that ballot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, that, that can be uh, time-consuming, let me put it that way. And to make sure they get it in the envelope addressed to them, we see them exchange envelopes within the household. So that's another important thing, to get it in the envelope that's addressed to them. The other thing that's very important is they need to realize the deadlines. Um, By law, they have to have that ballot return to us if they're mailing it back postmarked by November 4th. And a lot of times we see ballots that are postmarked too too late, and that's always sad to me. They think that if they put it in the mailbox, the mailman's going to pick it up on the day before the election and get it postmarked, and that is not the case. If they're going to mail their ballot, we suggest they even do it. The deadline this year is November 4th. We suggest they mail it by Friday, November 4th, to get it to us timely, no later than that. But if they miss that or if they're concerned they're not going to get their ballot postmarked in time, we have 20 drop boxes all throughout the county, and those can be found on my website. Plus, they're listed on the instructions that are in their ballot packet. They can drop their ballot at any one of those drop boxes. They're open 24-7. They can even go in their pajamas in the middle of the night, (laughs) drop their ballot in those drop boxes up until 8 p.m. on Election Day when the polls close. What if somebody has not received a, a ballot at this point? Can they still request one? Yes, so they can request one if they um the the registration is still open for online um and in person until October 29th. They may have moved. They can also update their address with us. They can do it by email or by calling us. If they've been registered to vote within Salt Lake County, moved within Salt Lake County, they can still register either online at the Lieutenant Governor's website, vote.utah.gov, or they can contact us and update their address. But I should make clear that there is not 
an election for every single voter in Salt Lake County. There are some staggered council districts up for election. Mm -hmm. And so in those cities that don't have citywide elections, or if someone doesn't live in a city or even in a metro township where there isn't a um, a township-wide election, there may not be an election, but if they contact us, if they haven't received a ballot, they can check with us and see if they should be voting in this election. Right. You know, one thing that I miss from the old days when you got your little I Voted sticker, I understand there's even an alternative for that for those who are voting uh, through the mail now. Well, we're looking at doing that next year, and, and including those in the ballot packet. We didn't want to put that cost on the city, but <laughs> yeah. uh, we've got a little we've got a little sticker that they can actually cut out on our instruction and paste it on. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Glue it on, whatever. But we're looking at including a sticker in the packets next year because people really do like those. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it says something, and and it served as a, a reminder, I'm sure, for a lot of people. One final quick thing. Remind us again, the deadline for postmark on your mail-in ballot is November 4th, but you are recommending to put it in the mail the Friday before just to make sure. Is that correct? Just to be sure. And again, it must be postmarked by November 4th. And, you know, like I said, that isn't putting them in the mailbox and hoping the postman picks it up from your house and gets it back and gets it postmarked. That's always sad. We see hundreds of ballots that are postmarked too late, and that's so disappointing to me. We want to make sure they get counted. Absolutely. If you're going to go to the trouble to vote, you want it to count. Sherry, as always, thank you for walking us through the process. You're welcome. Thank you. Sherry Swenson, who is the clerk in uh, Salt Lake County. Let's go ahead and take a a brief break. And when we come back on Inside Sources, we're going to be talking about the school buses and how people are ignoring those signs that flap out and tell you to stop. There are people that are just blowing on by them. There are serious consequences for that. We'll talk with uh, Lonnie Harden coming up next. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. We've been talking about some of the issues that are not only facing Salt Lake City, they came up in the mayoral debate today, but they're facing all of us. They're facing so many different communities, and even though some of the, uh, the issues they kind of epicenter, perhaps, in our capital city, our largest city, kind of the epicenter of our our largest county. But these are issues that affect us all. It affects Provo. It affects Ogden. It affects St. George. It affects Logan. All over the state of Utah, out in Vernal, it doesn't matter. Down in Carbon County and Price, we have these issues that affect us all. And I thought it was most interesting to get the take of our mayoral candidates today. Uh, I wanted to share what they had to say about the homeless uh, issues that are facing not only Salt Lake City, but sometimes when you work on one area, it yes, certain people are taken care of. It does clean up that area, and hopefully you're not just forcing the issues somewhere else. But in this case, that has happened a bit, including... Library Square. Library Square is one of the coolest places in the state of Utah. And I I tend to like uh, old-timey architecture a little bit more than some of the newer, but I love, I love the architecture. I love the feel. 
I love our our library, and I think of some of the things that have occurred there, some of the meetings that I've been to there, the presentations, movies that I've seen there, lectures that I've ever seen there, uh, that I've seen there. I have been there when the community has come together to mourn. A library is a sacred place in a community. It truly is. And it should be welcoming to everybody. The, the most well-off in our community to our homeless friends, as Pamela Atkinson would say. But at the same time, there needs to be a feeling on the square, cleanliness, safety more than anything, non-harassments, nothing that that is is, um, dangerous or appears to maybe a child or a young mother taking her child. Dee used to do that all the time at our library. When our kids were just little, she'd take them to the library because it was just such a beautiful and a safe and a wonderful (laughs) sacred spot within the community. But Library Square has really had some issues lately, including people camping on the square and utilizing the facilities of the square for everything that camping implies. I asked both of our candidates about Library Square and some of the issues facing, and Aaron Mendenhall responded first. Yeah, we know that, uh, and we've experienced that the outcome of Operation Rio Grande was not only experienced around Library Square and in downtown area, but in neighborhoods, alleyways, parks, public bathrooms across the city, really, truly across the city. And fundamentally, the solution to homelessness is housing. I've been working hard for years on the council, $21 million with the redevelop- redevelopment agency I put together for affordable housing. We've got to work on single-room occupancy, but we can't do that fast enough. And my concern today is that it was 38 degrees in the middle of the night tonight. It's going to be 38 again on Thursday night. And the state still doesn't have a plan for an emergency winter shelter. We have to deal with this immediately. We cannot wait until January for our next mayor, because if we do, we have a humanitarian crisis and we have already failed. The state needs to get on the ball and it needs to figure out an emergency shelter. In the long term, we've got to figure out homeless resources that fit people on the streets' needs. And I'm worried that we may be stopping six inches from gold on this with not enough resources. Liz Escamilla responded next to the issue of Library Square particularly. Preventing families and individuals from spending even one night should be our focus and our goal. And for many of these individuals, the ones that we see camping, these are considered chronic homeless, individuals that have been homeless for more than a year. Um, I think there is two ways of approaching this. One is the ones that are just in the need for Quickly exiting homelessness, uh, permanent housing through rapid rehousing is an approach. Making sure families do not stay even in a resource center. Let's put them in a place or prevent them from losing their, their apartments, their ho- home. A lot of them is due to utility bills. I mean, there's a lot of issues. Now, for the individuals that are currently homeless and they are camping in situations like this, we need to have a place, and no one will sleep on the streets in Salt Lake City. That's not who we are as a city or as a state, but we need to find a place. And to me, I think there's facilities across the street from Road Home, uh, working with CCS, Catholic Community Services, and other providers to uh, provide space for overflow shelter for this for this specific winter. 
Boy, every community has its issues with homelessness. There's just no doubt about it. And I was talking to a friend who just recently moved up here from L.A., and she said, I used to work with her back in the in the day a long time ago at Channel 4 and KCPX Radio, and she said that it got so bad that the congestion, the air pollution, everything else, but the thing she cited more than anything was the, the homelessness issue, that it was just becoming something that you couldn't deal with. And I was recently in San Francisco last week. I was uh, visiting there. We uh, saw a play. We, we, we were genuine tourists down in San Francisco, which is one of my favorite cities. And, but, it, again, it's just shocking. The homeless that are every – I'm walking down Market Street. For anybody who's familiar with San Francisco, that is one of the main thoroughfares, mass transit, public transit. It goes along there. There are the, the play where we saw Hamilton was in the Orpheum. That's on Market Street. And we're, we're walking along and just I, – I looked down and all I could see was feet that were sticking way out into the pedestrian part of the, of the sidewalk – and I looked over, and I, I just saw blankets, and you realize there's a human being under those blankets. The head of that individual was almost in the gutter. If if a car had just even practically bumped the, the gutter and had, had come up on board, would have killed that person just... And it was midday. It, it was I probably, what, two in the afternoon... So we're not exclusive on this, but it's so clear that the solutions to homelessness aren't on the street. They're way, way, way upstream from when, way up from when somebody actually ends up on the street for whatever reason. All right, we're going to take a break. I also want to share some comments a little later on in the program that our candidates had to say about the suicide issue here in the state of Utah. We had this text that came in a few minutes ago. Uh, And this was based on Dave DeRocher's comments a little while ago where he talked about the importance of family. This individual said, I agree with the idea that family is part of the suicide prevention equation. But remember that suicide happens in loving families, too. Boy, I'll tell you, that is absolute truth as well. All right. On that note, let's take a brief break. And when we do come back, boy, blowing past a school bus that has the lights flashing and the little stop signs out the side, it's happening far too often. We're going to talk with uh, an expert on that, what some of the uh, consequences are. That's coming up next on Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, at any time during the school year, this is a big, big deal. But as we move into some of the more hazardous weather conditions that are just around the corner now, when you read a story about the rising concerns of people that are just blowing by school buses, the stop arms are down, the lights are flashing, and they just go careening on by. We thought this is something that we really needed to talk about, and I really appreciate Lonnie Harden, who is on the line with us right now, president of the Utah Association of Pupil Transportation. Lonnie, thank you for being part of the program today. Thank you, Doug, for asking me, because as you know, um, stopping for school buses is our number one issue that we decided to um, focus on this year, and it's School Bus Safety Week. it, It is such a huge issue. And I can think of hardly anything more dangerous that we could do on the roads uh, 
than just blow by a school bus when it is stopped, unloading small children, lights are flashing, the little stop arms are out, and somebody just blows on by. Well, and to me, the consequences isn't a fine for speeding. It, the consequences are deadly. And, and the number of cars that are passing our school buses are increasing nationally. And we just don't want that to happen in Utah at all. We want to educate our community before anything bad happens like that, because the number of fatalities have increased nationally also. And you know, the cars are passing on the right side also. Really? The, yes, <laughs> on the right side? Oh, <laughs> my goodness. We have, um, in Washington County, I'm the director of transportation there, and we have Zion National Park. As you go through the small towns on the way mm-hmm. to the park, 34 times one of our bus drivers have had somebody pass their red lights, and our officers are so nice that they're out by the bus every day they can. They've given five citations this year when they were there to see it. But I just I think we need stiffer penalties, and we need to thank our law enforcement because it is it's a serious matter when it's our kids. Well, absolutely. You'd think in this day and age, with all of the focus on safety on the roads, with all of the focus on our kids, you look at the conversations that have been had very recently on having safety belts in buses and so on, you'd think that we wouldn't be digressing here. You'd think that we'd become more proactive and that the statistics wouldn't be getting worse. Yes, but I don't know. We're also getting more distractions in our vehicles. Yeah, no, that's and the world true. getting very, very busy. Sorry, go ahead. No, that, that, that's very true. I, you know, when you think about it, things that were not even conceivable when I was a kid, I mean, it was science fiction when when some of us, and that's not all that far back. I'm not talking about 1843 here, but you think of what is in our hands right now. Shouldn't be, but is. You think of what we have on our dashboards. I mean, it's it's incredible, the distractions. It is. The Jetsons, I really think they have come to life <laughs> from when I was a child. Yeah, they, they truly have. What but, What is the consequence if you mention five citations out of heaven only knows, at least, you know, 30 with that one bus driver alone, people blowing by the buses. What are the consequences? If somebody gets caught, what, what's, what's the consequence? That's a really good question. I hope I know the answer. Um, I think it's around $100. It can be up to 500 um, but I don't think that they give very many citations for passing buses because you have to be able to see who's driving the vehicle. Um, have the license plate and all the information accurately. And Deborah Dejana, I ruin her name, but one of the newscasters went a couple years ago to our legislators, and they got a law passed that we can put stop, um, I guess, what would I say, cameras, stop mm-hmm. arm cameras. Wow, yeah. Our, but the district, we don't have a lot of extra funding. And we're we're slowly trying to move that way as an industry, and that would film people that pass our red lights. and And my wish is we get there someday. Every bus in the state of Utah, and that was a nice move. But I don't think the penalties are stiff enough. A hundred dollars, I, I'm just not sure that's worth it. Yeah, a hundred dollars. I, uh, I mean, it's a lot of money. I get that. 
but for that, uh, for the consequences, uh, does the punishment fit the crime? And I don't think that does either. And I like the idea. You know, normally I don't like Big Brother type things. Uh, you know the right. But but if we ever did need a Big Brother type device, maybe something that snapped the picture as somebody goes careening by a, a bus with its lights flashing and the stop arms down, that might not be a bad idea. It isn't a bad idea. Um, and it would get the picture of the driver, the face, uh, the license plate, and everything. So there, that technology is improving and becoming more and more available. Uh, Jordan School District has cameras on their buses. They're the first one to do the beta test. We're, we're going to do a press conference there tomorrow. It'll be interesting. We'll have to talk with uh, Sandy Reescraft about that and what kind of uh, response they're getting, what kind of uh, reaction they're getting to those to those uh, cameras. I, I, have you ever heard of what the cost is to have the camera system per bus? Um, we pay a couple thousand dollars per camera system for inside, and did they say it was seven fifty? I have Lane Harden. He's my coordinator here mm-hmm. sitting by me. Did they say, Jordan, Sandy can also tell you the cost, but I believe it was. It's about three to $500 a bus for the outside. Do you camera. think? He yeah. thinks it's three to $500. Three to 500 Boy, that's, a, that's, isn't that ironic that if, if it's 300 we'll just use that lower number right now, that's only three times more than a citation. And to, right. to, to have that kind of ability to hopefully slow the numbers down. I mean, the idea is to prevent. It's not to punish. It's just to prevent. And if people knew that if they blow by that bus, they're going to get a nice photo of themselves with a great big old hairy fine in the mail, that might help. It might. And I, I'm i not sure if where the education comes to remember to stop for the red lights on a school bus. I mean, they alternate flashing red lights and the sign. When the sign is extended, it says stop. But not We even have some really old buses in the state of Utah that don't have the stop sign that extends. They should always look for flashing red lights. But I don't know if maybe the Department of Motor Vehicles could just email a warning when they email your car registration is, you know, up for renewal this year. Remember to stop for flashing reds on school buses. Yep. I don't know if it's that simple, but I think we need some kind of education, and we're a pretty quiet industry. Yeah. You don't hear much unless it's a tragedy from us. You know, my wife works for one of our school districts here in the state of Utah and in Salt Lake County, and there's nothing that puts the, well, maybe a school shooting or something, but of the, oh, the, yeah. the quote-unquote kind of things that, that happen without sinister intent, of of the things that just throw a student body into mourning, into uh, it, the effect that losing a fellow student in a school has. And when it's something that happens out in a crosswalk, it's something that happens around a school bus, it happens in a loading zone, that is one of the worst things that can happen to a school. It is. We had, um, we're just last month, and we had a girl walking on the way to the school bus. And she darted out in front of a car, and it she she got hit. And we are very lucky. That family is so fortunate. We we can count our blessings that she made it through that okay. Yeah. But sometimes I think kids 
think they're invincible. I wish maybe parents would help educate the kids as well to not be invincible. Look both ways. Don't dart in front of cars. Don't trust the red lights on a bus because cars aren't always looking and stopping. And we had to get counselors out in school um, to help our kids that were at the bus stop and that were really worried about her. It's not only tragedy to the adults and the media, but the kids themselves. Oh, absolutely. And they, and, they, and they just don't have the age and experience to process. I mean, it's hard enough for a, an adult, but for these kids, it it's just an off-the-charts tragedy in, in their lives. I so appreciate you joining us today. We're going to be interested to follow up on this, get some more information on the uh, the costs and so on, and even the consequences. And I really appreciate you joining us today, Lonnie. Thank you. Doug, it's so nice for you to invite me. And if we can just say to the parents, please join us in helping the bus drivers follow the having the children follow the bus rules, because one little distraction can be deadly. Absolutely, it's so important that we join with parents. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And boy, a lot of that responsibility is not all with the bus driver, not all with the drivers out on the road, not all with the people who work in our schools and those who are at the safety uh, uh, signs by the schools. It, It starts with everybody. It starts with us at home, especially. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to talk about something that was uh, actually going on today earlier at the Hinckley Institute of Politics and the Utah Poison Control Center marked its 65th anniversary with a very special panel discussion, Poison and Policy. We're going to see what transpired up at the Hinckley Institute coming up in just a few moments. Barbara uh, Crouch will be joining us here on Inside Sources. We'll also, also share some more comments that have been coming in on our text line. And then also a few more comments from our debaters today in the Salt Lake City mayoral debate. It's all coming up on Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Doug Wright with you today on Inside Sources. You know, there are some organizations that have been around. You, You just figure they're not only Uh, you know, around today, but they've been around forever. I learned something new today. I had no idea that the Utah Poison Control Center is marking its 65th anniversary. In other words, it got underway in 1954. It's one of those organizations that has always been with us, will always be with us, and I had no idea. I, I honestly was surprised to find out that it was that recent. Now, I know for many people listening right now, they go, good grief, Doug, that's over half a century ago. Yeah, I know that. But it's amazing, my whole life. And I think of how many times here on the air over you know, the 41 years that I've been here at KSL that I have talked to people from the Utah Poison Control Center about a myriad of topics. And there was a special event today at the Hinckley Institute of Politics to celebrate that uh, that. Uh, mark of the anniversary of 65 years, they put together a very uh, interesting panel and discussed the impact that this organization has had on Utah's policies and on Utah's public health. And one of the individuals who was um, on the panel today to discuss some of these uh, things was Barbara Crouch, who is the executive director of the Utah Poison Control Center. And Barbara, thank you so much for joining us here at KSL. And my first question is, how did it go up there today at the Hinckley Institute? 
Well, it was just awesome. Um, we had a wonderful group of folks. Um, we had Dr. Tony Temple, who um, he didn't start in 1954, but um, he trained at the University of Utah and medical school in 1968, trained with the original director, and really, I think, catapulted the Poison Control Center to sort of where it is today. And he um, and others were instrumental in not only pioneering the way for Utah, but really Utah pioneering the way for other poison centers uh, nationwide in, in its regionalization and accreditation. So that was really uh, fun to hear from him, um, the history. And then our panel included Senators Vickers and Representative Ellison, um, our medical director, Dr. Mike Moss, and um, the state epidemiologist, Dr. Angela Dunn, and Jennifer Napier-Pierce um, moderated. Um, and they touched on um, critical issues going on right now where that, that intersection of public policy, public health, and the poison center, including vaping, um, medical marijuana, uh, opioid crisis, uh, suicides. Um, so it was just a great discussion among the panel, and it was uh, really a great way to showcase the Poison Center as that essential part of the public health infrastructure in Utah. You mentioned some of those issues that are on the front burners today, vaping, not even heard of when I was a kid, uh, opioid abuse. I'm sure it occurred, but you never heard about it. Suicide, that too was an issue, but not to the degree it is today, and you certainly did not talk about it. It's amazing how things really have changed in our society. If you were to rewind, and uh, some of the individuals have been there for some length of time, what were some of the big issues that caused this organization to become organized 65 years ago? What would have been on the front burner, for example, or likely on the front burner back in 1954? Well, certainly uh, pediatric poisonings, and that's really how poison centers came about. They came out as an initiative from the American Academy of Pediatrics when they recognized that after World War II, there was a proliferation of products out on the market. Nobody really knew what was in these products, and little kids were getting into these products. So the American Academy of Pediatrics really forged ahead. The first poison center was in Chicago and uh, started by a pharmacist um, and, the, and the chapter of pedi- pediatricians there where the pharmacist's job was to collect information about these products to disseminate it to other physicians. And our poison center started by Dr. Alan Doan, a pediatrician here in Salt Lake, the same sort of thing. And so the idea early on was really about childhood poisonings, our oral explorers, and helping to inform other physicians about what was in these products and what most likely is going to take place. But of course, now most of our our calls, our um, consultations come from outside of the healthcare facility, um, come from uh, caregivers um, of all age groups, and uh, as a result of um, the poison center and our specialists who are pharmacists and nurses who are the ones answering those calls who are experts in toxicology, many of the situations that we are consulted on can be managed at home with telephone follow-up. So they don't uh, require a trip to the emergency department, which is expensive and, and, and you know, causes a lot of anxiety and you have to wait and all, all of that. So uh, I think things have changed, but they started really out as those as about kids, right, about those mm-hmm. oral explorers. But we, we know it's really much more than about kids, but that's really where it started. 
When I first became aware of the Utah Poison Control Center, I'm not exactly sure when that was, but, you know, you kind of reach that point that, gosh, if somebody ingested something, these are the people you call. And that's how I always envisioned the organization, that if you ever were concerned that maybe somebody had ingested or partaken any kind of poison or dangerous substance, you were the people to call. But when I listen to some of the new things that are out there, is there one thing that perhaps the panel dealt with above and beyond everything else today? You rattled off about four or five very important thing, but was there things? But was there something kind of on the the tip of the spear? Well, uh, you know, from I think all of them are really important and emerging um, issues. And certainly, we've been involved with the opioid epidemic from um, providing surveillance information, so a window of what's happening out there in the community, um, tracking naloxone administrations, um, really helping develop training programs, and um, and being a, really a part of all the state initiatives there. On the marijuana side of thing, I, I think if you look across the United States as states have changed their um, um, legalization or um, decriminalization of marijuana for medical and then, uh, of course, some states for recreational purposes, um, what has been widely reported is an uptick in cases reported to poison control centers as that availability increases. And we've been tracking that. If you go to our website and look at our toxic trends section of that, we've been tracking that. And the numbers are small, but they're going up as other states uh, are making uh, marijuana available for recreational purposes. And so we're really poised to help the state to monitor adverse effects from this, from medical use of it, but also if it gets in the hands, uh, has unintended consequences by getting in the hands of, of um, um, people that where it doesn't belong. Well, absolutely. You know, it's interesting with all the conversations we've had about vaping and about uh, opioid abuse and so on, uh, it just seems such a natural, although it wasn't the first thing that popped in my mind, that the Utah Poison Control Center would be right on the the cutting edge of all of this. For those who have questions or maybe they want to post a number that they might have to use someday, what's the best way to contact Utah Poison Control Center? It is by phone, and we encourage everyone to program it into their cell phones. It's 800-222-1222. And in the day and age of smartphones where everybody wants to search things online and Google it, um, we say don't waste time doing that. Call the experts. We have specialists in poison information. They're pharmacists and nurses who have additional training in clinical toxicology. They're not volunteers. They're experts. They have national certification, um, and that is the best um um, thing to do is to call first and not waste time, um, precious time, trying to search things on the internet where you may end up getting the wrong answer with that. Right. 800 That's correct. I'm going to program that into my phone. I, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Barbara. Oh, for it's my pleasure. And congratulations on the 65th anniversary of Utah Poison Control Center got underway back in 1954. Coming up in a few minutes, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to delve once again into what transpired during the mayoral debate earlier today. And it was interesting, uh, one of the, along with vaping and opioid and so on, suicide. 
And I've alluded to this several times, but we will play the actual responses when we talked about suicide and the startling numbers here in the state of Utah. And what would the mayor, I know specifically, but a leader, a mayor, a governor, whomever it might be, they set the tone, they set the priorities, they set the marching orders for whatever the organization or the entity is. So we asked those who want to be the next mayor of Salt Lake City, what about the startling suicide numbers in the state of Utah and certainly in Salt Lake City? We'll talk about that coming up on Inside Sources here at KSL News Radio. Plus, we'll give you a little heads up on what's coming up on the program tomorrow. I'll be back tomorrow hosting Inside Sources, State of Utah. And I wanted to share some of the comments that they had on that. And I think first we're going to go with uh, Luz Escamilla on that. So let's play her response when we asked about the startlingly high suicide rates in Utah and, of course, in Salt Lake City. The number one reason why our youth dies in the state of Utah is suicide. So in my plan, there's a very specific approach, and that is we need to have a nurse in every school. We don't. We have the lowest rate of nurses, RNs, in our schools in the whole state compared to any other part of the country. I think there is an opportunity for the mayor and the city to be very proactive and collaborate with institutions like Intermountain Healthcare that I'm already in conversations with to make sure we get the healthcare and mental health providers that we need in our schools. There's no other way of doing that. We need support. Our teachers are overworked. They already are doing three or four other jobs besides being teachers. They can't handle this. We need this help in there. I spent some time in West High, where our oldest son attends, and that's the first thing the kids were talking about. We need mental health support, so I'll bring them to the schools, and it's in my plan. It's interesting because the question that was asked was actually asked by a student of a college student who lives in Salt Lake City and was so concerned and mentioned that Skyline High School had recently had some issues in this arena and had hired somebody full time to deal with uh, with counseling regarding this. Uh, let's get the response to that question also from our Salt Lake City Councilwoman, Erin Mendenhall. It's a heartbreaking reality here, and uh, as a mother of teenager in uh, Salt Lake City Public School, I feel the fear both of the individual student safety but the safety of schools as we deal, deal with gun violence in our schools. Um, I know that the ratio of students to counselors is pretty deplorable across the board, and I'll tell you that as a, a 13-year-old, my father passed away, and I was able to access my school counselor who was available because the ratios were better And I can't tell you where I would be if I'd be here on this stage if I didn't have that kind of opportunity as a student in need at the time. Our students, no matter what the trauma is, whatever life is throwing at them, need to have that access to trained professionals in the school who are available and ready. Salt Lake City mayors don't have any control over the school district, their budget, what they spend the money on. But we do have a missed opportunity that no mayors have taken advantage of yet, of expanding the conversation, of working together. We're both taxing entities, too. So there's real opportunities for us to think about how we partner for project areas, how we spend that increment. And we've never committed to a project together where we decided to spend future increment on a shared outcome. This is one of the shared outcomes that we could look to. It is interesting, as you listen to both of the mayoral candidates, they both allude to this, that while perhaps the direct decision isn't theirs to make, they certainly have influence. And that's what I think sometimes we forget in this great republic of ours, our structure of government, that 
a leader is there for more than just the mechanics of a particular job that they have aspired to and acquired. They are there to direct. They are there to lead. They are there to inspire. They are there to prioritize. They are there to twist arms, honestly. And as was mentioned by Aaron Mendenhall, uh, it's like with Congress. Does Congress have have a lot of decision-making? Absolutely. Do they have all decision-making? No, unless you equate in the fact that they control the purse strings. And when you control the purse strings, you control more than might just appear on the actual paper, the Constitution itself, that allots your responsibilities and your your powers. I couldn't help but follow up. We had such a great question from this young student who asked the suicide question of our candidates, but I just couldn't resist a follow-up because often it's, well, this and it's, well, that, but you know, there's something different going on in the state of Utah because we have abysmal numbers, startling, shocking, pick-your-word numbers in the state of Utah. So I followed up with the question, why are our kids killing themselves? Having a health care provider, a mental health or a social worker available is critical is because they can tackle them right away. They can build a relationship with those children. So when you don't have someone to build a relationship with, that's part of the issue. Uh, I, there was a longer response to that, but we didn't have time to, to grab it all here. Aaron Mendenhall responded with this. The state needs to get on the ball and we needs to figure out an emergency shelter. In the long term, we've got to figure out homeless resources that fit people on the streets need. Uh, sadly, that was not the cut we were looking for. But as I recall, Aaron Mendenhall uh, said, look, you know, that there, there's something here that we've really got to deal with that is different in the state of Utah. And perhaps it's the extremely high expectations that we have. Perhaps it is, as she, she mentioned the culture, how that might be playing a role. She also specifically mentioned uh, conversion therapies, how she was absolutely adverse to that. So it was a very, very interesting uh, response that we had today from our candidates for Salt Lake City Mayor. And again, many people have their ballots sitting there on the kitchen table right now. I so appreciate everybody participating in the program today. And uh, we did have a couple of texts that came in regarding the issue of school buses and the fact that people are just blowing on by. Even when the lights are flashing, the little uh, stop arms are down. We talked about how the Jordan School District is putting cameras in their buses now and we were speculating as to the price, and we'll look for that exactly. But it's between three and five hundred dollars, we believe. This person texted in and said, "Hey, a dash cam for my car is sixty bucks. It shouldn't be more than that for a bucks uh, for a bus." Thanks, bureaucracy. Well, the trick here, though, is not just dash cam. <clears throat> the trick is to have a camera or cameras situated so you can actually get the driver's license, the make of the car, and who is driving. This person said, the thing that I have noticed is that buses are dropping off kids on busier and busier streets. Why can't we drop off kids on a side street instead of the major thoroughfares? Interesting. Hey, tomorrow, I just wanted to mention, 
that we will have our former governor, the former ambassador to Russia, the former ambassador to China, will be joining us here in studio. We're going to be talking with John Huntsman, Jr. I look forward to that conversation, and he'll be joining us in the 1 o'clock hour right here on Inside Sources. Thanks for being with me, Doug Wright, today, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Live breaking news. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.